Okay, hope everyone's well, and uh, I imagine uh, you had a big test kiss life thing yesterday. Because, uh, yeah. I thought I would get a day off, uh, I guess. And I, thought, I, thought when you, I thought when you test kiss, it was on Shabbos, everything was on Sunday, but I guess, Baruch uh, Hashem, you did it, uh, you did it Bismani. And uh, it's, it's Taka the Rosh Hashanah, the Rosh Hashanah for Hasidus, so it's a very big, uh, very, very important, important day. And, uh, this would be the Yisru Chag. This is the day after the Chag. And uh, we are told by every Yom Tif, uh, the day after the Chag still has an influence and a Kedusha from the Chag. So we hope that uh, the Shechus of the Alter Rebbe should uh, protect all of us and all of Kal Yisrael. And uh, you know, he should continue to be a, a beacon of light for us. Uh, we were discussing uh, last week assisted suicides. And uh, the basic bottom line is fairly simple, that except in cases of martyrdom and the like, or military necessity, like a soldier giving his life, it's written for a Jew to take his life, because it's forbidden for a non-Jew to take his life, because even under the Noahide law, murder is forbidden, and suicide is essentially a form of murder. And that's the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. Suicide is against the halacha, but halacha has an interesting differentiation between the act of suicide and the person committing the suicide. The act of suicide is forbidden, but the person who commits it may be temporarily insane, overcome by despair or depression or unbearable pain. And therefore, even though he did an Avera, it is an Avera, we can, we're not going to say that it's mutter, except I mentioned one opinion of the B'san Rosh, which is the forgery, safer. But other than the B'san Rosh, there's no permission to take your life because you're suffering. But if a person did take his life because of suffering, so we understand that uh, certain nisyonos, certain trials, are considered to be unbearable. And as a result, we still sit shiva for the person, we say kaddish for the person, uh, we bury him in a Jewish cemetery. And the rule that you don't do those things will not apply to a person who takes his life because of extreme suffering and the like. So that's an interesting difference between the sin and the sinner. The sin is condemned, but the sinner we, we deal with in a very compassionate way, at least after that. The story I heard many, many years ago, just to show you how important it is uh, not to let people, not to neglect people. Uh, a woman uh, came to a hotel uh, and she wanted to rent a room on the highest floor. And they told her that uh, the room's not going to be available to her. So she said she'll wait. So she waited in the lobby for five hours. Nobody uh, said a word to her. She just sat in the lobby. At five o'clock, she got the key to her room, passed key to her room. Uh, she went to the 20th floor. And five minutes later, she jumped out of the window and she took her life. And she wanted to rent a room to commit suicide by jumping out of a window. Now, the issue is this. She was in the lobby for five hours and not a single person spoke to her. Now, normally that would be the case. I mean, I wouldn't particularly go over to a woman, but I wouldn't go over to a man either. You know, you know, people respecting the But just hypothetically, if somebody would have, you know, been friendly to her, somebody would have made her feel better. Perhaps you might say, you might know this is so amazing. You know, we neglect people, no attention. We don't feel comfortable going over to a stranger and doing good habits, things like that. But you have to know, and I tell myself, you have to know that these types of interactions can actually save a life. You know, you might never know. In fact, I think there's even a play about that. It's not a Jewish play. It's about a guy about to commit suicide and this phone call and turn out to be a number. 
So he says something, like, it's a kind of a laugh. So he says, please help me, I'm really doing something very important right now. And women's so I'm going to kill myself, and I, you know, I prefer not to have interruptions. So she actually, actually she refuses to hang up the phone, and, you know, she convinces him that he's worth while, and that uh, people can like him, and, you know, whatever. So you never know, I never know how the smallest thing you do can make a difference, a real difference in a person's, in a person's life. Yeah. Huh? Well, see, this, this is actually the hidden secret. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of suicides are really a cry for help. Uh, for example, uh, there was a famous uh, British poet, a, a young woman, you may have heard of her, Sylvia Plath. Yeah. And Sylvia Plath had a lot of psychiatric problems from the time she was a teenager. And she was always overdosing on pills, and then they were taking her to the hospital. Uh, but her last uh, attempt was successful. Uh, she overdosed and uh, she died. Now, the story goes this. This is the story. The story is she had a cleaning lady that came in every Tuesday. I'm going to make up the exact times. That's like 12 noon. So she overdosed at 11. If the cleaning lady would have come in at 12, she could have been taken to the hospital. What happened was, after she was unconscious at 11.15, the cleaning lady called up and said, I can't come today until 1. Which means, in other words, Sylvia Plath died, but she did not necessarily intend to die. She wanted to get the attention, the cry of help, for someone to help her. So the truth is, there are a lot of suicides which are really cries for help. Uh, for example, you know, there are teenage, mainly girls, and some boys too, but mainly teenage girls, sometimes cut themselves up. Uh, they do even life-threatening things. But a lot of it is, again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean, you know, I want attention, I don't mean in a superficial way, but a lot of it is a, desperation in which they're looking for someone to help them. So I would suggest maybe the guy didn't hang up because, you know, maybe he wanted somebody to talk him out of it uh, on some. Um, so this is something that uh, we, do, we do have to remember how important our interactions are, that giving a person a friendly word can literally give them life. Of course, psychologically, of course it gives them life, but even physically it gives them, gives them life. Okay, but generally speaking, I think we're pretty clear that suicide, bad thing, even if we have compassion for the person who does it. Now, let me mention, however, that there are some things which are almost, you could call them suicide in a way, uh, uh, and even murder in a way, uh, and that is uh, you are allowed to pray for your death or the death of somebody that is suffering tremendously. I don't, I don't mean pray for the death of an enemy. I'm talking about uh, somebody suffering. So on one hand, they're not allowed to take their lives, they're not allowed to give their to take their lives. And on the other hand, you turn to Hashem spiritually and ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu to take their lives, take them out of their suffering. Uh, the proof of this, the proof of this is from a statement of Rabbi Nisbani, authorities, one of the commentaries of the Christian and Rabbeinu Nisim is often abbreviated Ran. You may have heard the name Ran, just like Rambam is an abbreviation. So Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, is an abbreviation. And the Ran directs us to a Gemara. The Gemara talks about Rav Yudah Hanasi. Rav Yudah Hanasi, Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the author or the editor of the Mishnah. The six orders of the Mishnah are Rav Yehuda Hanasi. And uh, towards the end of his life, he suffered from excruciating intestinal pain. 
Now, the Gemara de doesn't describe what the illness is. It, it didn't have our vocabulary, but it seems to be something like a stomach cancer. That seems to be what is being described. And it was excruciating pain, but the rabbis were davening with so much kavana that he should live. The Malach HaMavis was not able to get in. <laughs> so Rebbe, Rebbe the Hanasi, who's called Rebbe, our teacher, I'll give a second, had a uh, maidservant. And the maidservant was so concerned about his suffering, so she took a gigantic vase and she threw it down on the floor of the shul. So what happens is when you hear a sudden noise, everybody stops for a second. That second, the Malach came in and, and got him. Now, this maidservant is described in a few different places as a righteous woman. So our assumption is that what she did was halachically appropriate. And the Ran says that since he was suffering so much, although she would not be allowed to do anything that would physically kill him, like assisted suicide, she could stop the prayers. And the Ran takes it one step further. Not only can you stop people from praying, but you can actually pray that Hashem uh, take his life. Now, some people don't like the Ran, uh, don't like this Ran, because they say, well, you know, you don't have to pray that somebody should die. Uh, you can pray that Hashem should take them out of their misery and suffering. Now, that can be different things. That could be Hashem might do a miracle and heal them. Or if Hashem decides to take them, take them. But I mean, there's no reason why you have to pray directly uh, for somebody's death. Uh, you simply pray that Hashem should take them out of their suffering, and Hashem will decide. Right, so some people say it that way, and I think actually that would be the recommended practice. But the Ran does say, Beferish explicitly, that you could be Ms. Palel, uh, that somebody uh, that somebody died. I'm sorry. Um, so, like, for instance, my mother lived with Lewis and Clark Expedition. He was suicidal, but he didn't want to kill himself, so he kind of intentionally put himself in danger's way. So where would that fall? Where you're not actively doing it, but you're like, hey, I might have yeah, to go yeah. for a walk where murders happen a lot. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so you know, really, you know, it's not it's not so much for us to judge. We would give every case the benefit of the doubt because we don't know. But you know, God knows. Meaning, meaning, it all depends what his, what his intention was. Uh, if he went through a dangerous neighbor because he had to get to work, or he's a policeman, or whatever it would be, then the fact that he's putting himself in danger is not a sin. He's doing what he has to do. If, however, his real desire was he wanted his life to be forfeit, Hamacha, I mean, Hashem would treat that as a suicide. But remember, Hashem also factors in the depression and the despair and everything else. So. From our perspective, we, we would give the person all the benefit of the doubt. We would not automatically assume what his motives were. But you know, God doesn't have a doubt, right? So God knows what the motives are. So it would be a question of, of, of motive uh, and, uh, and the like. Now, let me mention another aspect of this, uh, which you might call suicide. And that's the issue, of, the issue of risk, meaning it's an interesting inversion of a problem. And you'll see this in halacha. The normal case of suicide is a guy wants to kill themselves. Okay. But what about this? What about a person uh, who has, a, has an illness, a serious illness? And this illness can be treated only by an experimental treatment 
or a very risky surgery that has a very good chance of killing him. Now this is not a real suicide in the sense that he's not doing it because he wants to die, he's doing it because he wants to live, but he's taking a risk, I mean, let's take an example. Let's imagine that there's some procedure, let's just say a person has excruciating cancer. I'm just making up a case. And there's a surgical procedure that if it works, he's totally cured. But there's a 99% chance he's gonna die on the operating table. And there's only a one in a hundred chance it's gonna work. So the question becomes, see I'm connecting this to suicide, and that is how dangerous a risk is a person allowed to take, or maybe even obligated to take, in order to preserve their health? When does it become a mitzvah of preserving your life, trying to preserve your life? And when does it become a sin because it's so risky that it becomes suicide? Well, yes. Okay. Well, well, let, let, let me put it this way. Well, okay. Well, we'll talk about it. That's exactly where we're going. I mean, but let's assume that um, if he doesn't do anything, he'll die in six months. If he does something, there's a 99 out of 100 he's going to die right now. You know, so still, he's maybe throwing away six months away. But, but again, that's exactly going to be the issue. So, 99% dying, I don't think doctors would tell us. Oh, I know, that's an extreme case, right. Okay, let, let, me, let me give you the discussion in the Gemara itself. The Gemara says in Maseches Avodah this is based on a story in Tanakh. This is actually one of the Haftoris that, that we read. Uh, this involves, this involves three, uh, this involves four lepers, four mitzoraim. Now you remember if somebody has mitzoraim, lepers, if you remember, when somebody is a Mitzorah, they are sent away from the camp. They're in quarantine. I guess we all know what quarantine is today. Uh, they're chutz lamachane. And the Jewish people at the time... No, 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 you're getting two things mixed up. No, no. Uh, if I kill somebody accidentally, so I go to a city of refuge until the Kohen Gadol dies. And that's why the Kohen Gadol's mom comes with like food. That's right. That, 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 that is correct. They want to bribe the murderers so they shouldn't pray that their son should die, assassinate their son. But I'm dealing with a different situation. I'm dealing with leprosy. Yeah. Leprosy is a skin condition, uh, but it comes because of sin. It's not a medical condition. It comes right. because of Lashon Hara. So what does the Torah say about a leper? A leper must remain in isolation, away from the congregation, but that's not until the coming out of the it's until the leprosy goes away. So that could be a short time, or that could be a long time, but he, right? you remember what, what case in the Torah, a famous uh, righteous person Miriam. had leprosy? That was Miriam, right? And Miriam had to be chutzlamachana. Moshe himself had leprosy, but very, very short. It went and it's gone. Remember when he was saying to Hashem, the Jewish people are not deserving of redemption. So Hashem said, put your hand, you know, uh, in your chest, and he pulled it out, and his hand was white as snow. Hashem is basically telling even Moshe, do not say Lashon Hara about the Jewish people. But that just came and gone. The leprosy went away right away, so Moshe didn't have to go chutzlamachim. Okay, so we have these four guys, four men, who are mitzoraim. By the way, the, the Navi doesn't say who these four men were, but Chazal had a tradition 
that these four men were Gehazi and his three sons. Now you have to remember the backstory. I don't know if you learned uh, Sefer Malachim. Gehazi was a man who was uh, the assistant of the prophet Elisha. And Gehazi, when people came to uh, Elisha, Gehazi wrongfully took some of their stuff as payment. And when, when Elisha discovered that Gehazi was taking things from people, he cursed Gehazi and his yeah. children that they would have leprosy, among other things. So these are the four lepers. And there's a war. And there's no food in the Jewish camp. So here is what, again, you have to follow the story here. Here is what the four gentlemen said. Listen, we are going to die of starvation unless we get food. There is no food. So let's go to the enemy camp and beg for food. Now, one of two things will happen. Maybe they will kill us immediately, or maybe they'll give us food. So since we're going to die anyway, this was your point, since we're going to die if we don't go, let's go and gamble. Now, the Gemara asked, but wait a second. If you die because of starvation, that'll take two weeks. If you go now to the, to the Syrian camp and they kill you right away, you're losing two weeks of life. So what gives you the right to risk two weeks of life? I'm making up two weeks, but a certain, this is called Chaye Sha'ah. What gives you the right to risk short-term survival because maybe there's no long-term survival? So here, the Mara deduces the principle. That's very, very important, although this is an ancient story. This is a principle that's extremely important in medical ethics, Jewish medical ethics. And that is, you are allowed to endanger short-term survival in order to obtain the possibility of long-term survival. In other words, to use the language of the Gemara, short-term survival is called chayesha, life of the hour. Long-term survival is called it's not eternity, but it just means you'll be sure you'll have regular life. Normally, you're not allowed to endanger even chayesha. In other words, I can't commit suicide even if I'm only going to live another day, right? So it's not that chayesha is unimportant. Chayesha is important. We will desecrate Shabbos for short-term survival. Okay, don't misunderstand the Gemara. The Gemara is not saying short-term survival is insignificant. You're saying you're allowed to risk the short term for the possibility of a long term. Now, the principle is pretty clear because you understand the issue there. Because the issue there is if we don't go and ask for food, we only have short term survival. If we go, we might lose the short term or we might gain the long term. The halacha says you're allowed to risk the short term to gain the long term. Now, the end of, just for your, for your information, the end of the story was that they went to the Syrian camp. And it was a miracle. The whole Syrian camp was abandoned. And it was, they left all their supplies behind. So the lepers were able to take whatever food they need, and they also told the rest of the Jewish people. So that was a miracle with a happy ending. But when they made the decision, they didn't know that. So the principle is clear. You can endanger short-term survival 
if there's a chance of long-term survival. Now the question becomes, what is the definition of short-term survival? What is chaye sha'ah? What is chaye sha'ah? So chaye sha'ah, Rav Moshe Feinstein writes, is defined as a probable, now you never know, but a probable life expectancy of one year or less. And by the way, if, if, you're, if you're familiar with secular laws about hospice, uh, you will find that a terminal, the term terminal condition is often defined as something for which there's a medical diagnosis of one year or less. And in halacha, that will be treated as chaye sha'ah. Where does halacha get one year or less? So it actually gets it from animals. There is a din in, in animals called trefa. Now, uh, this is something, you, you, you may know this, so forgive me if, if I'm telling you what you already know. You know, in, in colloquial speech, whenever we say something is treif, that just means it's non-kosher. But technically, that's not the case. Technically, trefa is a very specific problem, meaning like this. Chazer, pig, let's say, is behema tomeya, impure animal. The animal itself is impure. If you have a cow, which is a kosher animal, and the cow was not shechted, let's say it's just meat in a regular non-kosher supermarket, that's called nevela. Okay, so I'm gonna mention three types of treif here. Treif number one is behema tomeya, like chazer. Treif number two is nevela, which means a kosher animal that did not die through the shechita process but died by being shot or being stunned or whatever way they kill them, right? So, uh, and Rabbi Solanter actually said, Rabbi Solanter had a son who unfortunately stopped keeping uh, Torah. He was a very famous professor of mathematics. And Rabbi Solanter told him, if you're not gonna keep kosher, better to eat a kosher animal that's a novella than to eat a behemoth tomeya. So if a Jew has a choice, God forbid, between eating treif beef or ham, treif beef is less of a sin than ham. Now, there's a third abnormality, and that is, it's a kosher animal, it's a cow. It was shechted properly, so it's not in a vela. But in the internal organs, like the lungs, the kidneys, the brain, the stomach, there are perforations, tears, or rips. And a shochet or, or, or bodek has to check this after shrit. That animal is called a trefa, and it cannot be eaten. So technically, a trefa is only a kosher animal that was slaughtered, but it has perforations, rips, tears, punctures in some of its internal organs, and that's a very complicated body of halacha. In fact, let me digress for a moment and talk about kosher and glot kosher. So uh, you can have a little background about that. Uh, one of the classic ways that an animal is a trefa is if there's a hole or a puncture in a lung. That's for sure. Uh, if an animal has a hole in its lung, it is a trefa. Can't be eaten. But in a lot of lungs, it looks like there's no hole. But there are adhesions, right? A lung is supposed to be smooth. 
but sometimes there seems to be an accumulation of hardened fluids, like adhesions, on the lung. And the question becomes, how did that fluid get there? Uh, if there's an adhesion, that's called a sircha, that might show there may be a hole in the lung. So, what regular kosher is, regular kosher is that we cut away the sircha very gently, cut away the sircha with a knife, peel it away, and then we blow the lung in water like a bagpipe. And if there's a hole in the lung, you'll see a little bubble. The hole might be very small. There'll be a bubble coming out of the lung. If there's no bubble, that means there's no hole. Now, again, I, I don't think I would enjoy the job of blowing a dead cow's lung uh, in water, uh, but that's how you test in regular kosher. You see the idea? In other words, there's a sircha, there's an adhesion. We're not sure if that means there's a hole, and sometimes the hole might be very small. So what we do is we take a knife, scrape away the adhesion, put the lung in water, blow, you know, one end of the lung in my mouth and one end is in the water. The part that had the sircha in it is in the water. If there's a little bubble, uh, that means there's a hole, the animal is treif. If there's no bubble, we treat the animal as kosher. Now, the word galat kosher is the same as the Hebrew word chalak. Chalak just means smooth. Chalak means if there's any adhesions, we don't do this test. We just declare the animal treif and sell it to a non-kosher uh, meat processing uh, because we don't want to rely on this test because if there's a sircha, there's going to be a question. So it used to be that uh, most religious Jews did eat regular kosher, and glat, chalat, was like only for special righteous people. Uh, but today, for a variety of reasons, it almost goes the other way, and that is the vast majority of uh, Torah-committed Jews try to eat glat kosher, chalat, uh, and of course there's a problem with that, and that is that the percentage of meat that is marketed as glot is much greater than the percentage of cows that have smooth lungs. I mean, uh, depending on the country, you clearly have less than 10% of cows have absolutely smooth lungs. And yet more than 10% of the kosher meat that's sold is glot, which means by definition, that has to mean that some meat that is labeled glut is not actually glut. You hope that it's kosher, at least. <laughs> you can hope. Uh, but that's a real problem. And you know, obviously, you have to talk to your rabbis as to uh, what types of supervisions you trust or not, because there really is a big problem with the over-labeling of glut because of the, of the market. OK, now why am I bringing this up? Because Chazal tell us that all of these abnormalities, a punctured lung, uh, a hole in the brain, a hole in the stomach. All of these have one common denominator, that an animal with this condition will not live more than a year. So you see that an animal that has certain conditions that it'll live less than a year is not really considered a live animal. So Rav Moshe extrapolates that to the human condition. And that is, if my life expectancy due to this illness is 12 months or less. That is called short-term survival. That's not called real life. And short-term survival can be risked. You can risk short-term survival in order to maximize 
long-term survival. Okay, everyone understands, understands that. Uh, now, there are some interesting implications about that. I can risk short-term for long-term. So, can I risk short-term for a longer short-term? I mean, let's imagine the following. Let's imagine that a person has uh, cancer, and if it's untreated, he'll live for less than six months. But if he takes an experimental treatment, it's not going to cure him. But it'll, it may extend his life for another three months, but it, but it may endanger his life for this. In other words, he's risking the six for something that's chayisha. So the implication of the Gemara is you can't do that. You would not be allowed to do that. That would be like a potential suicide. The implication of the Gemara is you can risk short-term for long-term, but you can't automatically risk short-term for longer, shorter-term. That wouldn't be the same. Uh, that would not be the same uh, calculus. Okay, so this is a very, very important idea that if I'm presented with risky surgery, but I'm in a matzav of chayei sha'ah, I'm allowed to take, now maybe I'm not only allowed, maybe I'm obligated, I'll talk about that, to take the risk, because it may, it may cure me, it may heal me, it may give me chayei olam. So the question now becomes though, once we've identified the principle, the question now becomes, uh, what percentages are we talking about? Let's go back to the 99% and, and the like, meaning, to take an extreme example, which is very extreme, and you're right, doctors would not recommend it. What if there's a 99% chance, right? Without treatment, I'll live for six months. With treatment, there's a 99% chance I'm gonna die right away. But there's a 1% chance I'll, I'll, I'll be cured. Am I allowed to do that? So here, let me just mention, there are many, many different opinions, and I can't go into the total logic of all of them. But let me just give you three opinions. Opinion number one is if there is any chance that your life can be saved, you are permitted to undertake the procedure no matter how dangerous it is. Meaning to say, even in the unusual case that it's 99% that the guy's going to die on the operating table, Halacha says, if he wants to, he doesn't have to take it. He does not have to take the risk. Uh, but if he wants to, he is allowed to risk his life significantly for the possibility of cure. That's view number one. View number two goes the opposite direction. View number two says, there has to be at least more than a 50% chance that this will help him. So. Let's assume that the operation has a 50% chance of success, but a, uh, a uh, I'm sorry, 51% chance, chance of success and a 49% chance of dying on the operating table. He would be allowed to take the operation. But if the risks of dying early are greater than the probability of success, he would be treated as a suicide for engaging in deputies. So these are two opposite views. And then in the middle, there's a view of Rebel Yashif who comes up with a number, and I'm not really sure what the number is. Rebel Yashif says, you don't need a more than 50% chance of success, but you need what is called a reasonable chance of success. 
And Rebel Yashiv pegged that at 30%, which means if seven out of 10 people die on the operating table, but three out of 10 survive and are cured, you can make the decision to engage in that procedure. But if eight out of 10 people die on the operating table, and only two out of 10 get healed, you would not be allowed to take that procedure. So again, the different proofs of this, I'll leave for another time. But the point I'm discussing basically is, uh, we see from the Gemara in Maseches Avodah that you are allowed to endanger short-term survival if there's a chance of long-term survival. But how big a chance of long-term survival must there be? Some say it has to be more than 50. Others say the smallest chance will justify. And Rebel Yashif says there has to be at least a 3 out of 10 chance. So I think Rebel Yashif's opinion, uh, something like that, is commonly used. In other words, we don't require the 50% threshold, 51% threshold, but we do require that at least be a 30% success rate. And where does that number come from? It's hard to know exactly. You know, it's, it's really, it's almost like you picked it out of a hat, but it was based on the idea that there has to be what is called a reasonable probability of Hatzlacha. But that's not so reasonable. Well, so reasonable does not mean more likely than not. More likely than not would be 51%. But he says reasonable is a good chance. And again, I mean, he, he, he didn't use baseball as a proof, but remember that in baseball, if you bat 300, you're con- 3 out of 10, you're considered to be a very good hitter. So in the eyes of, of normal evaluation, we consider uh, 30% to be a reasonable chance of success. People will invest money based on that and, and the like. Now remember, we're talking about a guy who is in a terminal condition. He's going to die in less than a year. Right? So we're not talking about stop a healthy person taking a 70% risk. But when it's only chaye sha'ah, you're allowed to take the types of risks that you normally would not be allowed to take. Now, let me mention, though, uh, a problem with this. Um, This is where the person wants to have the operation, right? So when is the person allowed to have an operation? Now, let's ask the other question. When is a person obligated? Let's assume a person has uh, this condition, and the treatment that's offered to him is a highly risky treatment that may kill him right away. Let's assume seven out of 10 people died. He says, I don't want to take the chance. I would rather live for another six months. So it's interesting that even Rebel Yashiv admits that the person is not obligated to take a 70% chance of death. Uh, The person might only be obligated if there's 51% or maybe even higher, meaning a very good chance more likely than not that this could help him. But if most people die with this procedure, he does not have to take it. So the issue we were discussing is, is he allowed to do it if he wants, but he is not mechuyiv to do it for less than uh, 50%. Unless it's more likely than not, he's going to be successful. Now, here, 
I've been talking about risk in order where his goal is to prolong his life, meaning he's chaye sha'ah, and he's hoping to have chaye olam. What about dangerous experimental treatment because of pain? Let's imagine a person is suffering excruciating pain. It might be nerve pain, or it might be the psychological pain, let's say of paralysis. Spinal, spinal cord snap or something like that. So he's not feeling pain. He could jab a needle in him. He's not going to withdraw. But the pain is devastating. He feels that his life is over. And the treatment modality that's offered to him is a very, very dangerous procedure that could result in his death. But it could also result in him being healed and cured of the pain. Now, this is actually a problem that is not discussed in the Gemara. The Gemara's point was, I can risk my life in order to get more life. Meaning I can risk them killing me now because maybe I'll get food and I'll live a regular life expectancy. But this is a different question. Here, the guy is not terminal. The guy, perhaps the guy will live 10 years with this pain. He's risking his life not so he'll live more. He's risking his life to get rid of the pain. Are you allowed to risk your life, not to save life, not to prolong your life, but are you allowed to risk life in order to alleviate pain? So here, let me point out that uh, you know, one of the most common treatments for people who are suffering intractable pain is morphine. Uh, morphine is a narcotic, very, very addictive. It used to be that doctors would administer it to you. Now it's very common that patients, again, under a prescription, but patients have their own morphine pump. They have a pump that delivers morphine to them whenever they need it. Now, it was interesting that in the olden days, doctors did not want to prescribe morphine to terminal, even to terminally ill patients because they were afraid that the patients would become drug addicts, which is kind of crazy if someone has like two weeks to live. But Baruch Hashem, that's changed now, and it's, patients will get morphine and they'll be able to self-medicate. And it was actually discovered that patients are not becoming addicted uh, and in fact, the amount of morphine they put into their system when they self-medicate is less than what doctors would give them. So patients are very, very good at this. They, they measure what they need and they give what they need. But here is the thing. Morphine can cause a slowdown of respiration and a slowing of the heart. So 
Now, now, now people use morphine for suicide, but I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a person's taking morphine for pain. But every time they take morphine for pain, there is a risk of cardiac arrest and respiratory failure. So morphine is actually a dangerous pain medication because it can, and sometimes does, result in premature death. And yet the halacha is clear that a patient is permitted to take morphine for pain relief, even though it causes an incremental risk of sakana, which means you are allowed to risk your life to some degree, not just to save your life and prolong your life, but to alleviate pain and suffering. Now, the Catholic Church has a term for this, which is an interesting term. They call it, this is called the double effect rule. You may have heard of this. The double effect rule, this is from Catholic medical ethics, but I'm going to apply it to halacha. The double effect rule says, if a certain action has both beneficial good effects and immoral detrimental effects, as long as your intention is for the good effects, it is a morally permissible action. How does that apply to morphine? Morphine has two effects. The good effect is it takes away your pain. The immoral effect is it causes a slowing of respiration and heartbeat that can cause death. So if you or the doctor intends to take your life with this, that's immoral. But if the intention is pain relief and there's a risk that it may have the immoral effect under the so-called double effect standard, the Catholic Church says it is a morally permissible action. So Lahavdil, I'm not using Catholic medical ethics as a proof for anything, but this is exactly the halachic approach, that you're allowed to do pain alleviation even if it risks life, because in many ways we consider intractable pain, uncontrollable pain, to be worse than death. And therefore one is allowed, again, you're not, again, be sure you understand me, you're not allowed to commit suicide to get out of pain. That's not what we're talking about. If, if a person wants to take their life to get out of pain, that would be usher. We're not talking about, I want to take my life to get out of pain. Rather, I want a pain relief treatment that may endanger my life. That, Halacha says, is permitted for reasons that are very similar to what the Catholic Church calls the double effect rule, because your goal is not suicide. Your goal is pain management, even though it creates a risk. Okay, so that's uh, an important point. And this comes up with a lot of issues. This may come up with uh, surgeries for things like blindness, deafness, which are maybe high risk? Am I allowed to endanger my life for to get my sight back, to get my hearing back? You see, this is very different than the Gamara's case. In the Gamara's case, you were risking short-term survival so you might live longer. Here, you're not gonna live longer, but you are risking short-term or even long-term survival because you want to have sight, you want to have hearing, you want to have the ability to move. Now, those are great, important things, but what's the hedger to endanger your life for those things? 
the answer is that you are allowed to, but once again, if it's a very, very high risk, it may not be permitted. Okay, so everyone understands the general parameters of, of, of risk. Okay, now, the truth of the matter is, I've been talking about high-risk surgery, but the truth of the matter is, there is risk, maybe low risk, but there is risk to life in absolutely every single surgical intervention. Any time a person is under general anesthesia and a surgeon is gonna take out tonsils, take out an appendix, uh, there is a risk to life. A person can die, a person can die at the table, and indeed people uh, have died from routine, simple surgeries. But those risks are commonly very, very small. So if there's a one in a thousand, you know, that's mucha for sure. I'm talking about high risks, and that would be permitted only for something very important, like pr prolonging your life, getting healed, or getting your sight back, getting your hearing back, being able to move, uh, alleviating pain, right? that would be where you're allowed to take the high risk of surgery. Okay, then any, any questions about uh, this issue of, of uh, risk? Okay, so now let me mention another aspect, cosmetic surgery. Let's talk about that for a moment. Now, cosmetic surgery is surgery to improve your appearance. Right? Uh, men and women get cosmetic surgery. Uh, more women than men uh, get it uh, for various reasons. In fact, I have even heard, this is absolutely awful, that many Orthodox women get cosmetic surgery because they feel it will improve their shidduch prospects if they do this and that and that. Now, the short answer and the correct hashkafa is that as a woman, you shouldn't want to marry any person who would not see your milus unless you did this augmentation, meaning, meaning the guy that needs the augmentation to be able to date me is not the guy that I want to I'm speaking from a woman's perspective, is not the guy I want to marry. Okay, it would be a tremendous shanda uh, for anyone to feel that they have to engage in plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery. But from the standpoint of halakha, let's analyze what the problems are. And there are a lot of problems, halakhically, in cosmetic surgery. Problem number one is that all surgery is dangerous and you're not supposed to put yourself in danger. Now, even though the danger is small, but if you're just doing it to improve your appearance, in other words, the more important the reason you're doing it for, the higher the risk can be. But where there's not a real important reason, it's like a vanity reason or the like, then even any sakana might be forbidden, right? So that's one reason. Reason number two is really from the Alter Rebbe, and that is your body is not your property. Our body is not our property. Our body belongs to God. So what gives us the right to change it, which is really a form of mutilation. You're taking what Hashem made and you're changing it and improving it for non-medical reasons. So it's not your property. It's Kilo you're stealing from Hashem. Uh, the yeah. Are piercings allowed because they heal? 
That's one of the reasons that the hetero piercing is it's not a permanent. And that really brings me to the third reason. There's a third reason which is especially relevant for piercings. That is, just as there is an issue to wound another human being, to wound, you're not allowed to wound yourself. And therefore, any type of cutting, piercing, is considered to be a form of wounding. But as you say, the hetero for earrings uh, would be that the cartilage would close up. And ain't If you're having permanent body piercings, talk to a rabbi about it, meaning uh, it's not so simple that that would be allowed. I'm not saying, I'm not saying for sure it's us, but it's, uh, it is a very serious halachic problem. Again, it's, it's, in the, it's in the genre of tattoos. All of these are forms of mutilation. Now, again, as I say, if you already had a tattoo from before you became religious, or you already had body piercings, you don't have to undo it, whatever undoing would mean in this case. Uh, but in terms of getting it, you know, just like you can't get a tattoo, and you, uh, you know, cannot get permanent body piercings, but the things like earrings, the cartilage of the ear, maybe even a nose, might be permitted because those things are not permanent. So I mentioned three interrelated reasons, uh, problems of, of cosmetic surgery. One is sakana, danger to life, even if it's small, it is small, but people have died. Uh, number two, your body is not your property, it belongs to God. Number three, the prohibition of wounding. Wounding oneself, just like I can't wound another person, hurt another person. Now, having said this though, the post-skim do say that there are gonna be some cases where cosmetic surgery is absolutely permitted. Now, the most obvious case is if, God forbid, someone is a burn victim or there's been disfigurement due to accident or the like, of course one is allowed to have reconstructive surgery because uh, there was a disfigurement. Uh, and that also includes congenital, even if it wasn't something that happened to a person later, they were born with a cleft palate, they were born uh, with things that are you know, not aligned in the right way. So surgery to fix what is regarded as a congenital defect, a birth defect, or something that happened through a burn, or an accident, or a trauma, or an illness, that for sure is much, right? One, God forbid, one should not say, oh, how can I fix that? Of course, Hashem gave permission to fix these problems, so we, fit, we try to fix them. But then there's a, another view that goes even further than this, and that is, if a person has a condition which is humiliating for them, they're, they're not comfortable going out in the street, even though it's not necessarily a defect, it's not a defect. It's just something that a person is embarrassed to go out with. Uh, so the halacha says that uh, to alleviate embarrassment and shame, you're allowed to get that correct. Now that's very different than I want to be more attractive. In other words, there's a big difference here. If a person says, I want to be more attractive, that might be improper. But if a person says, I'm embarrassed when I walk outside, there are postmen that permit that type of intervention because that involves humiliation, not just, I want to look better. Yeah. If you need to have a bone that's medically broken and then reset, is that Yes, for sure, for sure. Because once again, uh, even though obviously there's a wounding process going on, but since it's a wounding that's being undertaken 
for a medical therapeutic benefit, not just a vanity benefit, uh, that would be considered to be part of a medical procedure. So absolutely, a bone can be broken in order to set it in the right in the right way. Okay, so that's kind of a general idea of plastic surgery. Yeah. Um, I have two questions. One yeah. is the piercings. Like, you've got a piercing for your religious, so you don't have to. You don't have to undo it. Right? But like, what if it's something that if you do undo it, it will heal? Are you supposed to undo it? Uh, even then, you're not obligated because, so to speak, the Avera was done already and you weren't responsible at the time. Uh, but I recommend the same thing I said about tattoos, that you know, technically, uh, you don't have to remove a tattoo that you got uh, before you were keeping the Torah. So, and that's technically true because there's no sin in having the tattoo. The, the sin is getting the tattoo. But nevertheless, I think if you want to become part of a Torah religious community, so you want to kind of get rid of those things that are inconsistent with the values of the community. So I think the same thing might be true with body piercing, meaning I will not tell you you must get rid of it. On the other hand, you know, you want to become part of uh, a community, whether it's Chabad or any type of religious community. So uh, I think it's it's better to kind of get rid of some of that stuff. Uh, I think even spiritually you'll feel in a better place by kind of putting that in the past. And then my second question was like babies, like parents pierce their ears. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I know my sister got her ear pierced when she was like probably only a few months old. Yeah. Um, that ear piercing like, yeah. won't heal. Even if like, if she takes it out when she's 13, it's just never, like I know. I oh know yeah, you know, you know that? Um, yeah. yeah like, mine will never heal if I took wow. out any of my piercings. You know, it's a funny thing because uh, a lot of the people who do the very early baby piercings, mm-hmm. it's very popular in the Hasidic world. So, yeah, so, so you have uh, Hasidim do it all the time. Uh, I think more so than uh, non-Hasidim. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's an interesting question because the classic hedger for ear piercings is that it will heal. Now you're telling me at a certain, if you do it uh, yeah, at a very young age. Yeah, for a certain number of years yeah. in, it just like, will never heal. It's, that's a good question. I'm, I'll look into it. I mean, I think the answer might be that you're analyzing this in terms of categories. Since cartilage piercings generally heal, they're not halakhically classified as wounds, even in a particular case, it's not going to heal. It probably is looking at it in terms of, in terms of categories. Yeah, I, like, I know with babies, like, it kind of grows with you. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I, I understand. Like, it heal, like, it just becomes permanent. Yeah, yeah. Versus okay. even if like a twenty-year-old got her ears pierced and kept it in for fifteen years, I think mean, even that like will that would permanently heal. That will heal, right? Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Everything, everything you do when a baby is young, kind of has a permanent effect. You're imprinting, uh, yeah. printing it on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question, but I think I, I guess the halacha, would, the analysis would be like I say, that you're analyzing this in terms of categories, yeah. and uh, and uh, and the like. Okay. Alrighty, so uh, we covered a few things today. We covered uh, pain management. Uh, we covered risky surgeries, uh, risking short-term life for long-term life, risking life in order to alleviate pain. Uh, we talked about uh, cosmetic uh, surgeries. Okay, let's see one second here. Okay, so now let me talk about uh, really maybe the most basic question of all. That is, we know that the central concept of halacha is called pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh says you save a life no matter what. 
right? You violate everything in the Torah, except for three laws, idolatry, murder, sexual immorality. You violate everything except those three to save a life, and that's even if it's short-term life. So the question becomes, does Judaism say you must keep people alive at all costs? Right? In the secular world, there's a great deal of movement about pulling the plug, taking people off life support. There is a movement called the hospice movement, which basically says, let a person die in peace, no life support, no artificial feeding, and let them go home or into a hospice. What does halakha say? Does halakha say you have to keep people alive whether they want it or not? at all costs. So, as you would expect, and <laughs> everything I tell you always, this is always the answer, there is a machlokas. There is a machlokas, and there are two basic positions. Position number one, which is, is a very hard position, but it actually is the most logical position. It's the simplest position, even though it's very hard. This is called the vitalist position. Vital means life. This is the position of Rabbi J. David Bleich at the Shiva University. He was a great, very great postdoc in medical ethics. And I believe, well, let me put it this way. This is the position that I've heard from many Chabad Shaluchim, although I'm not sure that they got it from the Rebbe. I'm not, not really sure, but this is their maybe instinct that you, and vitalist means you have to keep people alive no matter what. Even if they're con unconscious, even if they're comatose, even if they've been in a coma for 25 years and it's pretty clear they're not gonna come out, even if they are suffering pain, like say end stage pancreatic cancer and the chemotherapy will keep them alive another week you are mechoyev to provide all medical treatment that will keep people alive, regardless of the duration of life, no matter how short it is, and regardless of the quality of life, and conscious versus conscious, and regardless of the pain that they're suffering. Pain is not a consideration. You try to alleviate the pain, and as I said before, even if that has risks, you can do it, but you cannot discontinue life support because a person is suffering. This is called the vitalist position. Now, if you subscribe to the vitalist position, then you cannot accept a hospice program because the whole theory of hospice is that when somebody is in the last year of life, again, they use chayisha, our emphasis should be on making them comfortable and we don't try to keep them alive. We're not going to uh, do CPR. We're not going to pound their chest if they go into cardiac arrest. We're not going to do tube feeding. We're not going to do chemotherapy. Right? The hospice is based, right? The philosophy of hospice is that when somebody has been diagnosed as having a terminal condition in the last year of life, the only goal we have is to make them comfortable 
and alleviate pain. We are not trying to keep them alive a little bit longer. That is the philosophy of hospice. Under a vitalist position, Jewish law would not accept hospice. That also means Jewish law does not accept many things that are called advanced directives. Advanced directives are statements that people fill out ahead of time. They say that if I'm suffering pain or if I'm unconscious, I do not want to be on life support. It's called an advanced directive or it's called a living will. Same thing for our purposes. According to halacha, now legally this may not work, but according to halacha, even if the person signed a living will that said, I don't want to be in life support. We disregard their instructions. Now, legally, we may, not, we, may not, we may not be able to do that. It'll be like cremation. Like, you're not allowed to cremate, but sometimes you're stuck. But halacha would say living wills are worthless unless they say to treat. But if they say not to treat, it's no good. Okay, this is the vitalist position. However, you need to know that although people commonly think that this is the majority view of Orthodox Judaism, it in fact is the minority view of Orthodox Judaism, and the majority view is stated by Rav Moshe Feinstein, by Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, by many other poskim, and they have the following calculus. If a person is suffering in a terminal condition, which is defined as we defined it before, chaye sha'a, meaning life expectancy is 12 months or less, 12 months or less, even with the treatment. So number one, terminal condition. Number two, they are suffering excruciating pain that cannot be controlled. These are the two conditions. Chaye sha'a, unbearable pain. Number three, and they have requested that treatment not be provided, either in a living will or they're awake and they said, I don't want to be treated. Those three conditions. Chaye sha'a, unbearable pain and the expression of a wish not to be kept alive, if those three conditions are met, remember, this is the non-vitalist shita, then we are not supposed to do anything that will prolong his life in that pain. Yes, this is the non-vitalist, this is Rav Moshe's position except for three things that we have to do, no matter what. We have to give the person food and water, hydration and nutrition. You cannot allow a person to starve. You have to give the person oxygen, air. Those three things you have to do no matter what. But you don't have to do chest pounding. You don't have to do chemotherapy. You don't have to do surgery. You don't have to do things that could keep him alive a little longer 
as long as you're giving him hydration and nutrition, that's food and water, and oxygen. Now that doesn't mean putting him on a respirator. You don't have to put him on a respirator. But you have to give him oxygen so he can breathe. So let's give a few examples where this would work. Let's say you have a terminally ill patient, pancreatic cancer. Uh, if you don't treat him, he'll die in six months. If you give him chemotherapy, he will live for 10 months. Now, it's not going to cure him. It'll just give him more time. If he is terminal, which he is, because even with the treatments, he'll die within the year. And he is suffering excruciating pain. And he says he doesn't want to live. He would be permitted to decline chemotherapy. He would be permitted to sign a DNR, do not resuscitate, if he goes into cardiac arrest. He would be permitted to sign a CPR, no, I'm sorry, no CPR, no chest pounding. But he would not be permitted, according to drug motion, he would not be permitted to decline hydration, nutrition, and breathing support. He could decline a respirator. He could decline a tracheotomy. He could decline an operation to make a hole, but he would need an oxygen tank or an oxygen tent, and he would need hydration and nutrition, even if it's tube feeding. Now, uh, which means that still doesn't get us into a hospice, because a hospice, most hospices, do not allow artificial feeding. There are Jewish hospices that do, and therefore, if one is keeping halacha, See, hospice does many good things. There's a lot of things about hospice that are very, very positive. They provide psychological support. It's a very, it's an atmosphere of comfort. I, I am not at all against a lot of the things hospice does, but the problem is hospice does not uh, do anything to keep people alive uh, within that terminal situation. And even Rav Moshe would allow a lot of things not to be done, but some things you would have to do. Now, so does everyone understand the difference here? In other words, according to the vitalist view, all life support must be initiated and continued no matter what. According to Rav Moshe's view, and Rav Yashiv's and Rav Shlomo Zalman's view, uh, you have to give hydration and nutrition and oxygen, but you do not have to prolong life if the person is chaye sha'ah and the person is suffering and the person expressed his wish not to be kept alive. Now, what if the person is unconscious? What if the person is in a coma? Now, it's interesting that paradoxically, there, more, there may be more of a duty to keep a person alive in a coma than a person not in a coma, because a person in a coma is not feeling pain. In other words, you have to keep people alive unless they are suffering this excruciating pain. So paradoxically, if the guy in the coma is not suffering the pain, there may be more of an obligation to try to keep them alive, as opposed to somebody that's awake and saying, I don't want it. There you're dealing with pain and suffering. Okay, But it's the pain and suffering. It's not the... It's not just his wishes. It's the wishes combined with the pain and the suffering that allows for not providing life support. Now, it gets complicated, because there may be a difference between putting somebody on life support 
and taking them off once they're on it. A respirator is a good example. A respirator is a breathing machine. So, if somebody is, has chaye sha'ah, they're going to die within a year, as far as medical science says. And they're suffering tremendously, and they don't want any life support. They have the right to decline being put on a respirator. They have that right. But once they're on the respirator, to shut off the respirator might be treated as an example of homicide. That's not killing them. You see, not giving them the respirator is simply not keeping them alive. So halakha is very complicated because a lot of times, once a treatment was started, to stop the treatment might not be called a withholding of life support. It may be called an active intervention to terminate life. All right, so the bottom line here is, and I hope none of you ever have to face these situations, but if you have relatives uh, that are in these situations and they want to follow halacha, it's very, very important that they talk to a rav because some things don't have to be done and some things have to be done. And some things don't have to be done, but if they started, they can't be stopped. And some things can even be stopped if they're started. So one has to analyze all of these different things and uh, go through with the rub. What is the patient suffering? Is there pain here? Is there physical pain? Is there psychological pain? Is he comatose or awake? All of these different, different issues, okay? The bottom line, though, is that halacha recognizes that even pikuach nefesh can have exceptions, that we don't aggressively have to keep people alive if that's going to condemn them to unbearable pain. The vitalist position would say yes, but Rav Moshe's position is not. Okay? Does everyone understand this? I know that I'm covering a lot of ground here. I hope it makes sense in a general, in a general way. So now, uh, let me say that uh, there is a document that is called a halachic living will. A halachic living will that uh, was prepared by the organization Agudas Israel of America, Agudas Israel of America. And they prepare it for every state of the United States, because every state has like different laws. Uh, what is a secular living will? That basically says, I don't want life support, etc. And that's a legally binding document. A halachic living will is an attempt to make a living will that will comply with halacha. So in many ways, it's a little bit of a disappointing document because it really doesn't say anything. It basically says, I want my medical treatment to be in accordance with Jewish law, number one. It then says, the interpreter of the Jewish law shall be rabbi so-and-so, giving his address and phone number, and then something like, and if he is not available, rabbi so-and-so. And you can do as many uh, substitutes as you want. You could have 100 if you want. Now, obviously, you have to talk to this rabbi beforehand. But this will be the rabbi, this will be the person that the family and the hospital, even, and the doctors, have to consult in terms of what halacha requires. So it has to be a rabbi that you know and that you trust. And it basically says, and whatever this rabbi interprets as Jewish law, is binding on my family, on my doctors, 
on the hospital. These are my wishes. So it's a very vague document because it really doesn't say, see, in a secular living will, you say all these things. I don't want dialysis. I don't want chemotherapy. I don't want this. Or I want this. This doesn't do that. The halachic living will doesn't really say what you want and what you don't want. It basically says, leave it to the rabbi to say what halacha says must be done and what halacha says doesn't have to be done. In other words, essentially what you're saying is, my desires are to follow halacha as paskined by this authority. Okay, that's called the halachic living well, and uh, it's probably a good idea for people to have it because that guarantees, it doesn't really guarantee, but it, but it creates a greater possibility or probability that the decisions will be made according to halacha. But that also means that this is a conversation that you have to have with the rabbi, meaning you shouldn't just name somebody and then the guy discovers, you know, years later that he was put in a living will, if he's even alive then. The rabbi might die before the uh, person who filled out the living will. So it's, it's important to have a discussion. I mean, I, I, mean, I myself am on a few living wills of different people, uh, but it's something that, you know, I had a discussion with them. They, did, they didn't just put my name down and forget about it. And, and the like. Okay, this is called halachic living will. If you Google halachic living will, you will get a living will for every state of the United States. Uh, if you're staying in Israel, there are similar forms for Israel that you need to be, uh, be aware of. There is also, I'll give you just general information for you, uh, Aguda also has uh, a subsidiary organization called Chaim Aruchim. Chaim Aruchim means long life. And they are a really wonderful, wonderful organization that really helps families navigate with hospitals and doctors. So if, if, if God forbid, you had a relative in a New York hospital, uh, and there are problems that the doctors don't want to do life support, and you want life support, or vice versa, they will run interference. They will talk to the doctors, the hospitals, the ethics committees in hospitals. And in fact, although their home base is New York, I think they'll do this nationwide. So, and probably in Israel too, meaning any issue you have with life support and treatment of terminally ill people in a hospital or a nursing home setting, this organization, Chayim Aruchim, will very much help you with it. So it's, uh, they have a website. It's a good organization uh, to, be, to be aware of. Okay, any, uh, any questions about this? Okay, uh, maybe we'll stop a little early today. I just have to... Uh, Make an appointment. Anyway, wish you uh, have a good week, everybody. Uh, stay Thank healthy you. and much Thank you. Thank you.